We have been talking the last couple of weeks about the culture of the church, what, what the culture should look like. Uh, it's, it's interesting that when we look at culture, it's, it's the status quo, it's the norm, it's the familiar, it's that which we know what to do. I remember years ago, I was in Arkansas with, yeah, with my wife and her family, her extended family, which come from a small town, uh, and we were at a church function, and everybody was having a potluck dinner afterward, and I was doing and being my normal self, going and talking to everybody that was there. And some of her relatives, some of Nancy's relatives, got a little upset because I was talking to the wrong people. And it was amazing to me, but that was the culture. Not all culture is good. Not all culture is bad. It's the status quo. It's the norm. It's what you're familiar with. And, and I, I want to ask you a question. What is the true culture of the church? There are many times in life that, that you have to change your thinking and the paradigm of thought to get to the truth. I, I grew up in, in, a, in a Pentecostal background. I, I went to a Pentecostal Bible college, and then I went to a Southern Baptist seminary. Yeah, buddy. It was one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my entire life. Because it forces you to get out of your preconceived ideology and think. If you look at, uh, at many of the books that I buy and read and, or the ones that I read online, or, uh, about half of them are, are, are uh, from authors that I disagree with. But I believe that you have to get to the point that you have to challenge your thinking. You have to understand it's, it, who and how people around you are thinking. It's not because you want to prove that you're right and they're wrong, but you always look. The Bible says to study, to show yourself approved unto God. And I believe it's important. That's why when, um, when Edmund was talking about going out and listening, powerful tool, that when you understand why people are thinking the way they are, it's not just so we can change their minds, but to walk in their shoes, to kind of understand what they're thinking, and then compare it to the Word of God. So I would, I would think that sometimes in our lives, when, it, when you're dealing with theology or dealing with topics of the church or dealing with the culture of the church, or, or if you're studying, sometimes you just have to erase everything. You move everything. You, you clean the slate. If you're painting and you don't like what you're painting and you can't fix it, Sometimes you just paint the whole canvas white and start all over. Amen, Jeanette? And, and sometimes it, it, it's good to set aside what you have been taught, what you think, and what, what people have told you. And, and not to say it's wrong, but from a clear perspective, look at the topic at hand from a new perspective. To look at it and challenge your, 
challenge your thoughts. I will be honest, there are, there are some things that I was raised with that, that I no longer believe. And my mom's gone, and I'm, I can say this without fear of her coming back and hitting me. Um, but one of the things that she really believed was in Scripture was that cleanliness is next to godliness. If I would have known that when I was a child, I'd have never taken a bath. So there are things that, that we can challenge ourselves on. And, and, and one of the things I want to look at is the culture of the church. What is the culture of the church? And I would say that there is a universal culture of the church. The church, God's people, the, the people of God. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church. And notice that Jesus said he's going to be doing the building and it's his church. It's not our church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. In Ephesians, Paul describes the church. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. And he says that he describes the church as Christ in charge. He says this in Ephesians 5.23. He says, Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. The church doesn't belong to anybody else. Nobody else is in charge. And, and it's, it's not, I, I love our district superintendent, and he, is, he, he helps in our district, and I love our national office, and, and they help with our, with, our, um, with our ministries at large. But the reality is, overall, Christ is head. hate to say that to the Pope, but Christ is the head of the church. It's his body. He's the one that is in charge. Ephesians 4, 4, Paul going on to say, not only is Christ the head of the body, but there's only one body. I don't care if you call yourself Pentecostal. I don't care if you call yourself Baptist. I don't care if you call yourself Presbyterian. I don't care what you call yourself. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the one body of Christ, the church. We can have our, our differences in opinions, but the one thing that we can't change, the one thing that that we can't move on is the fact that it is belief in Christ that brings us into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, here's what Paul said. He said, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you have a part in it. That we're all part of the body of Christ. And, there, and this one body that, that we all have a part in, there are universal aspects that make up the culture of the church. Now, the culture of, of the assembly that, that meets here in Florida will be different than the culture of the assembly that's meeting in Strasburg or the culture that is meeting in California or no, North Dakota. I, does North Dakota have a church? <laughs> Do they have people? No. But each, each part is, is different. But there are certain things that are going to be found 
in all of the cultures, although we may have some differences. It, and and I, I've been around the United States a lot. It, it, if you go to a grocery store in California and you ask somebody and you say, now, uh, where are the green beans? They're going to look at you and say, aisle 12. And if you go to the north, like Minnesota, and you ask somebody, where are the green beans? They're just going to point. They're not even going to speak that way. If you're in New York, just don't ask. <laughs> but if you're in the South, and you say, where are the green beans? And they'll say, well, they're on aisle 12, right in between the canned corn and, 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 and the beans. Come on, I'll show you. How's your mama? <laughs> all stores, all different locations, we're all still part of one, one country, but people are a little different, but we still are under one constitution. People in the church, we will act differently on some regards, but, but there are some universal things that, that we need to see in every single assembly that calls themselves by the name of Christ. In Ephesians, in 2 Corinthians, rather, 6.16, we, we've been talking about this last couple of weeks, Paul says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And he, and he looks at them and says, for we're the temple of the living God. If you're looking for the temple of God, if you're looking for the dwelling place of the Most High, you're not going to find it in the Himalayas. You're not going to find it in the depths of the sea. The temple, the place of the living God where the presence of God dwells is in the heart of every born-again believer. When he talks about, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit in, in Corinthians, what he is really referring to is the not just the temple proper, not the outer court, not the inner court, but the holiest of holies. That place where when the, when the priest would walk in, in in the temple in the Old Testament, and over on the right hand was a, was a table with bread on it, and over on the left hand was the candlestick, and right in front of them was an altar of incense, and, and beyond that altar of incense was a veil, and beyond that veil was not just the holy place, but the holiest of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God dwells. And Paul was saying, don't you know that you're not just the, the place where people look at and say, oh, there's the presence of God, but you are the holiest of holies. Powerful. Do you look at yourself sometimes and say, wow, I am the dwelling place of the living God. I want you to, he goes on to say, I will live with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And here's number one that I think that should be in every single culture of the church is that we are the people of God. That we are the people of God. How did we become the people of God? Did you decide one day, you know, I think I'm going to change my name. I think I will become the people of God. We can't get there on our own. Israel 
was created by God. The nation of Israel was created by God. It wasn't, he did not choose the nation from existing nations. He spoke to Abram in Genesis and he said, Abram, I want you to leave your father and mother. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave the, the nation that you're from and I want you to go to another place that its builder and maker is God. And Abraham, through faith, both trusted in the Lord, got up and left. And Abram became Abraham, which was the father of the nation of Israel. And they followed the Lord, and they trusted in the Lord. And then they went into Egypt, and, and they, were, they were there as slaves for 430 years. And, and after that 430 years... God heard their cries, always knew that through Abraham he was going to bless all the nations of the world. So after 430 years, he sends Moses, and Moses uh, stands before Pharaoh and does all the plagues, and, and Pharaoh will not let them go. So he decides, God says, I'm going to do one more, one more plague, and Pharaoh will let you go. And he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, one without any blemish. And I want you to take it and I want you to sacrifice it. And I want you to take its blood and put it over the doorpost of your house. And I want you to take the lamb and I want you to, to, to roast it. I don't want you to boil it in water. I don't want you to add herbs. I want you to just boil it because I want it to be pure. And I want you to take unleavened bread because we know leaven represents sin in Scripture. And he says, I want you to take a sinless bread and eat it. And he said, anybody that does not have the blood over their doorpost when I pass by the firstborn in that family will die. Notice God had called Abraham. God had, had, had worked through Jacob, which became Israel and his 12 sons, and Joseph had brought them into Egypt. And now 430 years later, he's speaking to the people of Israel, and he's saying, only those that have faith and put the blood over the doorpost will I pass by. Just because we're, we're born into a Christian family doesn't mean that we are Christians. Oh, I said it, and I'm not taking it back. We have to have that blood over the doorpost of our heart. It's not enough just to say, oh, I'm a Christian, and my mom was a Christian, and my dad was a Christian, and my grandparents were a Christian. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you have the blood of Christ applied to your life? So here's, so here's Egypt, and, 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 the, and the death angel comes, and, and everybody that did not have the blood, their firstborn died, and, and, and they were able to leave, and they took, and, and God said, I want you to be prepared, I want you to be ready, I want you to be ready to go, have your shoes on, be ready for travel. So Moses, uh, Moses went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, get out, leave, go, and, and they left, and then we know the story how how Pharaoh tried to follow them, and, and then Israel went across the Red Sea. And then when, Moses, when, when Pharaoh tried to follow, they were drowned. 
an amazing story of redemption. That's in Exodus 12. But then there's something happens in Exodus 14 that's really, really intriguing. They get to the mountain, and, and, and Moses goes up the mountain, and, and God speaks to him, and he comes back down, and, he, and this is what Moses says to the people. He says, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. After the blood was applied to the doorpost, and after they had went through the Red Sea, where Paul said that was a symbolism of baptism, after the justification of their life, then God speaks to them and says, I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God. I want to make a covenant with you. And he says, okay. And they said, we will do this. And then God gave them the commandments as a boundary, not, not to keep them from doing things that, that they would like to do, but it was a, it was a boundary. He set a boundary that, that they could have a relationship with him as long as they stayed within that boundary. We look at the things that God said don't do, but do you, have you ever considered all the things that he didn't say anything about? God wasn't trying to restrict the people. God was trying to help them understand that if you live within this boundary, you'll be able to walk with me, to talk with me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Let's fast forward. Jesus on the cross, his body broken. Hebrews says, sacrifice and offerings you didn't want, but a body you have prepared me. That he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That everything that happened in the Old Testament is a type and a shadow of the spiritual things that happened in, in our time, in this generation, in this covenant that we are in, this covenant of grace. And, and so Christ was crucified, that perfect lamb, and, and he is the bread of life that is perfect and without sin. And his blood, it was shed that anybody that, that asks him to, for forgiveness, that he will apply the blood over the doorposts of our heart. That we can be justified. That we can walk in a, a sinner. We can walk in with the weight of the world upon us. Condemnation upon us. But the moment that we receive Christ, that the blood of Christ cleanses us, that the death angel, when it comes our way, will see the blood of Christ on our heart and say, I'm passing over them and we will be granted eternal life. We have Christ. And Paul is saying, don't you know that you are the children of God? You are the people of God. How are you the people of God? Because he bought you. He purchased you. He delivered you. He set you free. And then he says something amazing in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, I love that word, therefore. Because of all the things we just said, that you're the people of God. Therefore, let us lay aside everything and let us perfect holiness. 
What does holiness have to do with being the people of God? It has everything to do with being the people of God. Just as the Ten Commandments and, and the other commandments that God gave Moses to the children of Israel so they could live in a, in a right relationship with their God, we are given because we have the blood of Christ applied to our life, because we have uh, our sins washed away, because we have renounced sin and we have said that Christ is Lord and Savior in our life, and because He has done all these great things in our life, He comes to us and says, if you want to live in right relationship with me, perfect holiness. You say, well, we don't live under the Old Testament. And I'm so thankful we don't because I don't want to raise sheep and lambs and hold them while, while they are slaughtered. But just as God gave Israel the commandments in which to live, He has written the commandments upon our heart, on the flesh of our heart. We call that holiness. And we perfect holiness, not in order to get to heaven, not in order to receive salvation, because Israel had already been delivered when they received the commandments. And we have already been delivered. We have been justified in the eyes of God. But we perfect holiness so we can live in right relationship with our Creator. Why do we want to, to renounce the things that, that, that God doesn't like in our life? Because they hinder our relationship with Him. And He died that you and I could walk and live and move and, and be uh, in His presence. Holiness is being right inside. Righteousness is doing right outside. Holiness is not inscribed in us. It, it's only through the obedience to the Holy Spirit within. When we renounce what we would do and we follow after the Spirit, that's why the writer of, of Romans says, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Why should we be holy? Is it going to make our way to heaven? Scripture says, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. You ever gone through a situation in your life and you wondered where God was? You couldn't see him? Holiness. To us is the commandments to Israel. They lived by the commandments in order to have a right relationship. We live a holy life so we can have a right relationship with God. Can I ask you a question? I know you're thankful. I know I'm thankful for the Lord. But are we cultivating that love for Him? 
godliness is essential to being the people of God. We're his people. I want to be pleasing to him. I want to hear his voice. I want to speak to him and I want him to speak to me. That happens when we walk in right relationship with him. We're getting ready to take some communion and I'm going to ask our praise team to come. Jesus with his disciples, he said, uh, as often as you eat, eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And I said, why? What are we remembering? We're remembering that it was his sinless life. It was his sinless words. It was his broken body. It, it was his shed blood that allowed us to become the children of God. Standing here, and I just remembered, I have not asked anybody to help me with communion, so I'm going to embarrass Chris. And Trisha, would you come over here? And Phil and Ruth, would you come over here on this side? Notice in Scripture, Israel was delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea, and then they made a covenant with God that they would be His people and He would be their God. And here we are, fast forwarding past the cross, and we have, we have given our lives to the Lord and we have had the blood of Christ applied to our lives and we have been identified with him in baptism and after that justification that, that it's a, that's a $50 word for being right in the eyes of the law that's all it means now that, that we are in right relationship with God through the work that Christ has done, through the door, His blood being applied to our heart, God is speaking to us and, and saying, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And I'm not going to give you a bunch of commandments. I am going to ask you, will you be holy? Will you love one another? Will you serve one another? Will you passionately pursue me in my heart? If holiness is anything to the children of God, to the people of God, it's everything when it comes to being in right relationship with Him. And today, as the people of God, like to challenge you to search your heart as I have searched mine and, and continue to search and say, Lord, 
if there's anything in me that, that is not pleasing to you, let me set it aside and allow your presence to fill my heart. Allow me to follow after your spirit. Not the things that I would do, but the things that you would want me to do. Because I want to be in communion with the creator of the heavens and the earth.